now, our feature presentation. One, two, three, four! everyone, welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and for today's episode, I have on with me a very special guest. I have on J.R. Reich. He has been a musician for many years. He plays all kinds of instruments, the guitar, the bass, the drums. I'm not entirely sure what instrument he doesn't play, but he'll tell <laughs> us in this episode. J.R., welcome in. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How you doing? I am doing fantastic. Better now that we're here, getting a chance to uh, do this interview. And I know that you've been playing music for a long time, and it's just great to have you on to tell your story because you are a very active musician. Well, yeah, um, I, this is what I do for a living. So, yeah, the, the mortgage and everything like that comes into play. So have to keep the keep the bills going. But mainly, uh, I guess it started way back many, many years ago. Uh, my mom and dad had a band since before I was born. So I was basically raised in a musical house and uh, they would always uh, rehearse in their living room. So uh, from coming, you know, being raised up like that and uh, they have pictures of me in the uh, baby crib holding a pair of drumsticks, beating the crap out of everything I can hit a drumstick with, playing along with them. Um, and that was basically the, you know, musical household that I grew up in. I was, um, born and raised sort of in Cambridge, Ohio. And in 83, we had moved to uh, Beaumont, Texas. And, uh, I was seven years old then. Uh, my mom and dad again had a band. They would always play Friday and Saturday night in the bar rooms back then, uh, Friday night. They went and played. Uh, I stayed next door with the babysitter and my dad come home about uh, they come home about three or four o'clock in the morning. Uh, just fired the baby or the bass player uh, the Friday night. Uh, my dad woke me up, uh, showed me a song on the bass guitar. Put your fingers here. Now put them here. Now move here to move this. And, and uh, he passed out. So he had quite a few Budweiser's that night. And uh, so the next morning I had gotten up early and that same album, I had taught myself how to play that album, you know, A and B side both. So, and my dad was kind of surprised. So uh, he took me with them that Saturday night to play bass in their band. And I had been playing music ever since then. Uh, started out on bass, uh, which was great for me because I learned the fundamentals of the instruments, uh, downbeats you know things like that the basics of music uh, my dad was a guitar player so i had picked up guitar along the way and uh, my mom played drums so naturally i learned some drum basics from her so in the meantime my dad was always a recording fanatic so he had always tinkered with recording stuff here and there we had a little makeshift studio in the kitchen and that's where I kind of got into the love of recording also. What were you um, what were you listening to back then music wise? Uh traditional country. It was all country and western music, strictly. 
my mom and dad, they would not listen to anything else but and rock and roll, pop, nothing. No, no way, shape, or form. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's what we were listening to. A lot of Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, uh, what else? Willie Nelson. I think you were. Uh, I, think, I think you were telling me too about uh, a Waylon Jennings record that you have when you were younger, uh, and it, it was very well loved. So you must have really been yeah. really enjoying those records back then. I still, yes, I still have that album. the uh, The album is uh, uh, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Jesse Coulter, and Tom Paul Glazier, The Outlaws album. Uh, and I still have that. I don't think it's playable today. <laughs> Because uh, not only for me learning how to play that, but it's had a few uh, a few spills of beer and alcohol all over it too. So it's a little sticky. And it sounds <laughs> disgusting, but uh, it's the way of the way of life. And it still has cigarette smoke smell to the wow. cardboard cover. <laughs> wow, that really adds to yeah. its uh, its value. You know, its sentimental value. So uh... oh yeah, that's that's where it all started for me. That's so, great. Uh, That's awesome, man. At, at what point did you get to Florida? Um, we moved to, from Beaumont, Texas. Uh, we moved from there to Florida in 1986. And uh, at that time, my mom and I came to Florida first. And then shortly after, my dad came uh, after he got everything packed up in the house and all that, you know, how you got to get rid of stuff when you move because you don't want to take it with you, all that kind of stuff. So he followed shortly behind and then uh, started up a band again. And uh, it's just continue playing music. Uh, we set up a little studio again in here in uh, Ocala. And then uh, slowly progressed as we went along and recorded, you know, messed around with recording. We had gotten a piece of equipment here, another piece of equipment there. And a friend of ours that we met here in Ocala, Bobby Land, had a recording studio on uh, on 40. So, uh, and he was getting out of it. So we had, piece by piece, gotten a lot of the equipment that he had. So our, our recordings got a little bit better, or so we thought. <laughs> so we had more toys to play with. So, <laughs> But uh, also doing that and uh, playing music, uh, picking up, you know, learning more on the guitar, playing drums. Um, and I did learn at an early age that being able to play drums, bass, and guitar, I was able to get more work than most people. So, uh, and those were the three main instruments that everybody needed. You know, hey, I need a bass player. Hey, I need a drummer. Yeah, I can handle That's that. That's true. No those, are, those are the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I, I'm still doing that today. I still get phone calls. Hey, uh, can you fill in for me Saturday night? My bass player is sick. Uh, yeah, sure. I could do that. No problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> Were people around town finding out about this studio that you and your dad put together? Were other people perhaps wanting to check it out or maybe record or anything like that going on at that time? Um, at that point, it was primarily just for our own personal use. Uh, we had recorded some other people, but it was more like uh, friends. And uh, we had recorded uh, another musician that we come along. Uh, he had his little band. And he wanted to do a couple of tunes. So he would come over. And I think what my dad wound up working out a deal with was uh, <laughs> they came over and handed my dad a case of Budweiser. My dad went and sat and had the Budweiser while I did the work in the studio. <laughs> and recorded. 
but uh yeah it was uh it it, it was a learning experience you know right. by doing that you got to i was able to learn how to work with other people and uh pick up little tips and tricks from everybody and just my wife says kind of like a sponge i just soaked it all up and use it to my advantage so to speak right yeah i mean you are in that period where you're learning right and you're trying to grow those skills uh were you at all uh taking classes in school at that time to learn more about playing music um not about playing music, uh, basically learn music on stage. Um, and I also, um, as far as recording, um, we had moved, let's see, I think it was 89. We had moved from uh, Ocala, momentary memory lapse there, moved from Ocala to Dunellen, which is where at that time, that friend of ours, Bobby Land, he had started a course at CFCC for uh, recording uh, audio engineering. So I had signed up for that and I did take a six month course for that. So I learned a lot there about the basics of recording, um, some things that I already had, but just a different way to use the gear. And uh, that's where that's where it started to elaborate more. I started getting more people coming out because the studio got a little bit bigger and we were able to do more for recording. And then the word, like I say, the word started getting out more and more about recording and different things like that. Were you at all at this point learning about local music? That Was there anyone you were hanging out with or maybe that your parents knew that were playing music on a more local level at that point? Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. We would go to a friend's house um, for like a Saturday afternoon to hang out on the river or something like that. And somebody else would be there and they would have a guitar. So we would kind of It'd be uh, kind of like musician networking, like what used to be, uh, not to do with social media or Facebook or anything, but that's how uh, we met other people back then was through barbecues or meeting up at a music store or something. You know, that's that's how we used to do it in the old days. Um, like I say, my mom and dad had their band. And then when uh, mom and, my mom and dad divorced, so it was just him and I for a while, we got I got into, I guess you call a house band. Um, and we played the same bar every Friday and Saturday night, which got a little old, but it was cool for me because I got out of the house. But um, And I started meeting, obviously meeting more and more people. Uh, I had never thought to myself about starting my own band because I had always been in a band. You know, I've been playing with, you know, somebody else. As far as starting my own group, um I guess that would be when uh, the singer of the band I was in, she had left and we had, we needed somebody else. So the guy in the band got found another female singer. They come out to the house and we went over a bunch of stuff. And uh, that was our second generation of that group. But again, was there a name? People. Was there a name of that band? Oh gosh, uh, that would have been Southwind. Okay, Southwind band, uh, and that was uh, the lady that come out to get the keys and arrangements for that song. Later became my wife. <laughs> Typical country song there. Yeah, <laughs> I would say but, so. Uh, 
but uh, so I guess in a way that's where it started out for me with my personally my first group because after about a year or two with this guy, we found out he was kind of skimming off the top. We weren't very happy about that. So uh, my wife, who was not my wife then, says, what are we going to do? This is not fair. And I said, well, let's do it on our own. So we went and we got background tracks. We played the background tracks back then. And there was uh, that's when hardly anybody was doing it. So we had the uh, background tracks on cassette tapes. And uh, this was the mid, uh, had to be 94, 95-ish. And uh, we went out and did it on our own. And that's, I guess you could say that would be my, personally, my first band that I was kind of in control of but um and still recording at the same time still doing that on in the meantime you mentioned about the cassette tapes right so yeah were you putting this out to sell at gigs like what were these tapes for uh those tapes that we were using uh they were five minute tapes um if anybody's familiar with cassette tapes you had 30 minute 45 minute 90 minute tape but these were only five minutes um So it's one song per side. And we were using those for our background tracks. Like these days, people use their iPads or their phones or something for their background music to perform with. We were doing it with cassette tapes. And that's what these tapes were for. So, And we used the five-minute tapes because uh, if you put five songs on one tape, it's harder to cue them up uh, that way. So it's just one one, one song per tape per side. So how many songs did you have at that time? Oh, gosh, we had 300 tapes. So that would be 600 songs. Wow. I imagine <laughs> a lot of these were cover songs. They all were, yes. Yeah. Okay. They And they ranged from, uh, I think I got into, I was getting into Hendrix. And we ranged from Hendrix to Frank Sinatra. And everything in between, <laughs> we had a, a wide variety of music back then. I imagine that uh, because that's so different than maybe what you were what you grew up with. Right. I mean, you went from more like outlaw country to to like Hendrix, for example. So how did your family feel uh, about your pivot to maybe more uh, rock and roll kind of stuff? Um, My dad kind of I don't want to say he was upset with it because he he was a straight country guy. But in a way, he also realized that whatever I learned to play kind of accelerated my learning, you know, my playing ability. So I, he wouldn't, they weren't really upset with it. They just, well, okay, if if that's what you want to do, then go for it, you know, kind of thing. Um, I will say a funny story. When when I was in high school, I I was getting into the hair metal scene you know that that kind of rock and roll stuff which they that was a no-no but (laughs) i uh i come home one day from from school and uh i had a deaf leopard i think it was hysteria it was it was on mtv that's when mtv was really hot and that's all they played was music videos when it was really mtv right (laughs) back then but uh i was listening to deaf leopard and right in the middle of the song i think it was pour some sugar on me if I remember right, my dad come in from work. He says, what in the hell is that? I said, oh, this is one of the newer rock bands, Def Leppard. He says, that's exactly what it sounds like. 
<laughs> but uh, I liked it. You know, it was something different for me. Uh, yeah. I got to say, though, that probably the first rock band that took me out of the country scene that really, I guess, knocked me out, if you want to explain it that way, was probably Van Halen when Sammy Hagar joined him. When when I saw Van Halen uh, live without a net, I just I, I watched it probably half a dozen times that day. And that's what really opened up my world to oh there's more than just country out here uh, i still love country don't get me wrong but right the world is huge uh and the, the music world is huge and that then it just my mind just blew up with information sure it's like a whole nother world right but they, oh yeah but they kind of yeah. can blend together and there's 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 a place for all of it. I feel like uh, in yes. someone's taste of music. Uh, I want to go back a little bit to the whole cassette thing because uh, a quick story. When I first discovered who you were, I found a cassette, but it wasn't <laughs> any of those backing tape cassettes because those obviously weren't off for sale. But it was something different. And I stumbled upon a tape, and I'm going to share that here. For those that are watching the episode, <laughs> you can see the picture of the tape. Uh, this is a cassette from Darlene and JR. Not this JR. Obviously, he's a little older. Uh, right. But another JR. And this is a cassette called The Song That I Remember. And it came out in 1994. It was recorded in Ocala. And one of the credits on the tape is an engineer and a bass guitar from J.R. Reich, this J.R. Reich. So Mm -hmm. you had to have been pretty young when you were involved with the making of this tape, which, by the way, this is a pretty good tape. I really enjoy it. So talk about your memories of this cassette and the recording of this album. Um, Well, J.R. was, uh, he owned a, a golf station gas station if if some of anybody's old enough to remember golf gas stations back then uh but he owned the golf service station and uh my dad worked for him as a mechanic so uh and of course my dad was always open ears for any musicians so made a long story short he had come out jr had come out to the studio said i want to record a gospel album and uh with my partner says okay so uh he came out that both of them came out and they both had 12 strings. And I asked him, how do you want to do this? Uh, he says, well, when we play at home, uh, we just sit on the floor and play to each other. So, okay, well set up like you normally do. And I set up mics and you know everything. So when they, when I got a decent sound, you know, through the studio monitors, um, I asked them if they were ready and they says, yeah. So I hit the tape machine. Uh, there were no computers in these days again. Uh, it was pure tape machine. And uh, I hit the tape machine and give them the cue that they were rolling and they performed the songs, just like you hear on the recording. Um, then after that was done, I went back and kind of, uh, I won't say processed, but kind of sweetened the sound a little bit. Uh, the bass that you hear on that was from a keyboard. I I wanted to mimic an upright bass, but that was a keyboard, which was an old Insonic Mirage sound uh, sampler, uh, which had the, if you remember, the 3.5 floppy hard disk. 
that they had back of then. Of course, yes. That's what these sounds were on. And wow. uh, so I, I played that bass on a keyboard, which was uh, from the sound module uh, off of that floppy disk. Studio magic, my friend. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, so when they got done with that, uh, we listened to it and he was happy. She was happy. And I, I mixed it down on a master cassette tape and uh, they sent it off to the distributor and they made the J cards and uh, they printed on the cassettes and shrink wrapped them like the one you have there. And uh, that's the recording. And yes, I was pretty young. Uh, I had to be 15, 16 ish wow. somewhere in there. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, I was doing that stuff at a fair, fairly early age. How did your dad react to the final output of that album? Uh, he liked it. He didn't have anything to do with it, but <laughs> he liked it. Uh, <laughs> he had a habit of uh, uh, we would go in the studio and shut the door and he'd be in the living room watching Andy Griffith with uh, a case of Budweiser. And when it was done, he'd come back and listen to it. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, that's how that was. That was done. And it's funny you should bring that up because uh, I just got in contact with Jr. again. He lives a little bit south of here uh, in Oxford for me. And we had been talking about that album. Um, he was asking me if I could remaster it and uh to put it on like a digital platform or something so i'm in the process of actually working on that yeah it's that's wild that you bring that up that is wild <laughs> that is wild and that's great to hear because you know albums like this unless you actually have a physical copy like this there's no way to find it i mean it's not on any streaming platforms it's really nowhere to be found and unless you were a part of it or maybe you remember it from way back when you wouldn't even know it existed. So it's just, it's, it's, it's nice to know that that's something that could be in the works. And I imagine you'll do a fabulous job on the, uh, on the remaster if that does come to fruition too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, uh, it's amazing with modern technology, you know, all the tools that we have on the computers and everything to, uh, to do this, because if I didn't have the computer uh, technology nowadays, I wouldn't be able to do anything with it because the tape the master tape was on an eight track reel to reel an eight channel reel to reel machine. And it's not playable. Uh, the tape is basically almost shreds when you go to play it. So it, to get it off the original format, it's not possible now, but I can put the, the cassette, I can play the cassette into the, the computer and, uh, through a little bit of modern technology magic, it'll enhance it and make it sound right. better. And I'm sure that'll be great. So, uh, but I, I definitely enjoy the production on this. I, I <laughs> definitely, you. I definitely enjoy that tape. And uh, so I want to also talk about, you know, cause you mentioned, you know, you were not only playing music, right. But you were also, were checking out some local music as well. Uh, and you being young, right. Were there places you can go that were all ages or how were you able to kind of check out some of the different local music that you wanted to before you were old enough to get into some of those other places? Uh, no, there weren't many places I could go into. Uh, matter of fact, when I wasn't playing with my mom and dad's group anymore, uh, they got divorced and my dad wasn't playing anymore. I started playing in this other band. Um, we had to get a sheet of paper that was notarized saying that he was responsible for me. 
because some of these places kids couldn't go into and I was still underage. Right. Um, but I was able to, again, meet other people. And because, I, I mean, I couldn't go up to the bar and order a drink at, at 14 years old. So I had sat in the booth on the breaks and listened to what they played on the jukebox. Um, and listening to that, I would always, still to this day, I'll listen to music and pick up on different things and try to mimic what they're doing on the guitar or the drums or the bass, you know, just, just learn as I listen. But, um, yeah, listen to the jukebox and stuff like that. That's, that's how I learned in my, uh, musical, I guess, uh, taste has expanded because yeah, there were no clubs that allowed somebody at my age to go into them where these other groups were playing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the first actual concert you went to in Florida? Uh, in Florida, I would have to say in Florida would have been to see Charlie Daniels band at the Marion County Fair. But my first concert was actually to see Alabama up when we lived in uh, Ohio. Uh, that would have been Jamboree in the Hills uh, in West Virginia. And uh, I guess in a way I was kind of hooked back then, but I did notice when I saw uh, Charlie Daniels that I was paying attention more to what the band was doing. I was watching Charlie Daniels because obviously it's Charlie Daniels, but I was watching the bass player or watching a guitar player or drummer, you know, what they were doing. And uh, I, uh, I tend to drive a, a couple of my friends crazy because I watch the unnoticeable things, the, the little things, you know. Hey, did you see what that drummer just did? Well, no, I was watching the singer. Watch what the drummer does. Oh, who cares about the drummer? <laughs> We're watching the singer. So I, I noticed the, uh, I guess, obscure stuff, if you want to call it that. That's how I learned all of this. I, I, I watched because, uh, okay, what's the drummer doing on this part? And that's how I, still to this day, I picked that up. And I guess that's how I got to, to this point in life as far as, a, as being a musician. I would say, I mean, you obviously picked it up and you've been doing okay for yourself, you know, yeah. uh, playing music. So because there were, those were two of your earliest memories of seeing live music on that level, Charlie Daniels bands in Alabama, did you at any point start to maybe do a cover of any of their music in some of your music that you were doing? Well, the funny thing is, is I was not singing at this point. I didn't start singing until... I was way too shy to sing. <laughs> so I didn't start singing until I was maybe 19, 20. So yeah, there was, uh, what I would do is pick up guitar licks, uh, learn to play the drums along with their cassette tapes and albums and stuff. But, uh, and I was not writing songs at this point. I was just basically playing whatever the band wanted to play. I was just, I guess if I look back on it, I was a hired gun and, played what they wanted to play. Yeah. That was pretty much it. How did you overcome the feeling of not being sure if you wanted to sing? Uh, well, I was told I had to. <laughs> Who told <laughs> I you was that? Told I had to because uh, the way that it come about was uh, when my wife, uh, who was not my wife at the time, but when she had joined the band, She's, she told me, she says, I, I'm not, I can't sing four hours straight. You're going to have to learn to sing a little bit. 
I thought, and I just kind of swallowed that lump in my throat. And I did one song out and that became two songs and that became eight songs. And now they can't shut me up because I <laughs> sing all night long now. You would never know that from the way you perform. You would never know that's what, yeah. what the starting point looked like. Oh, yeah. Well, I the first song that I actually sang in public was at my uh, in-laws' house. I mean, we weren't married yet, but at we rehearsed in their living room, and I literally sang the first song facing the wall because I couldn't look at anybody. <laughs> but What was the song? Uh, it was Memphis, Tennessee. It was a Johnny Rivers tune. But uh, that was the first song I sang in public. And uh, it's probably a good thing we were playing for some backwoods, like kind of dingy bars. <laughs> was, uh, let's just say the first place that I sang at would have been uh, a place out in the middle of the woods. And there were probably 10 people in there and five of them were passed out on the floor. <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> it was a good place to start yeah. <laughs> can't get a better start than that so no, uh no. we were just knocking them dead <laughs> that's fantastic oh, <laughs> so so once you realize and those that were around you that okay jr can sing right he's got a, he's got a pretty good voice you know at what point did you believe that that was the way that it really was um, well, honestly, I still don't think that because I, uh, I was, uh, the reason I think that way is because, uh, it goes, it goes back to when we lived in Texas. Uh, I had just started learning to play guitar and I was feeling pretty sure of myself. You know, it, it I think I was, uh, either eight or pretty close to nine years old then. And I got to thinking, oh, I'm a guitar player playing in a bar where nobody else my age, they're all at home sleeping. I'm up at two o'clock in the morning. I got to be pretty good. And I got to feeling pretty confident and sure of myself. And then uh, one night this guy came in and talked to my dad, says, hey, can I set it on guitar? Well, this guy, he had uh, on his he had no thumbs to start with. He just had four fingers on each hand and wow. his his right arm, he had no forearm, meaning his wrist was on his elbow and he he was born that way. And he was asking my dad to set it on guitar. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, OK, yeah, this I got to see. Well, he grabbed my guitar, sat down, he turned it upside down. The same guitar just played it left-handed and he just ripped, tore it up. And from that point on, I knew even at nine years old, I knew that I need to change the way I think because if you start thinking you're really good, there's somebody going to come in in the door and basically hand you your rear end. Uh, there's somebody always better. So I never thought that I was, a you know, I still don't, I don't think I'm a great singer, but I can get the job done. That's about as far as it goes. But if, you know, am I a great singer? No. Because yes. there's other people that can sing their way around me all day long. So, and uh, yeah, that's because of that. That's the, that's the way I feel today. But I can get the job done. 
You're not doing too shabby, JR. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, I appreciate that. But yeah, I'm just, like I say, I'm just blessed that uh, I get to do what I love to do and people enjoy hearing it. That's all I can ask for. And it's a good mix. You know, I think I think your voice, you know, if I had to kind of give my own opinion, I find that your voice is is perfect for when you are playing more blues style music. Uh, so we talked about how you got into the countryside and how you got into a little bit of the hair metal side. So yeah, yeah. But how did the blues enter your palette of musical taste? Well, um, my wife's best friend had uh she was big blues fan huge blues fan and when uh my wife and i got together and uh i met her best friend joanne uh she was constantly trying to get me in the blues and you know it's okay yeah that's fine that's cool and i never really thought about it too hard but one uh one birthday we were playing it we were playing a show somewhere and for my birthday she had given me a CD of B.B. King's Greatest Hits. And the first song, I took it home, went in the studio, I put it on. First song on that CD was The Thrill Is Gone by B.B. King. And I was hooked. You know, the way he played the guitar, the way he sang, like, oh, I was hooked. I, I needed to hear everything. I wanted to hear more. And so uh, I worked at Lowe's and Ocala at that time and Every morning, I had B.B. King blasting on the way to work. And when I got done, I had B.B. King blasting when I left there. The people at, uh, that I worked with, they got tired of hearing B.B. King day in and day out. because I just fell in love with it. I mean, it was totally different than, obviously different than country and different than hair metal. But uh, so one of the guys says, you need to go across the street, buy some Stevie Ray Vaughan. Said, well, Okay. So I walked across the street on my lunch break to uh, Circuit City when they still had those. You could buy albums there. Uh, and I bought Stevie Ray Vaughan's The Sky is Crying album. I put that on and I wound up a huge Stevie Ray fan. And I bought every album that he had recorded. And uh, then after I got to listening to all of Stevie Ray's catalog, I started realizing that a lot of his stuff was cover tunes. Like he covered a few Hendrix tunes, uh, uh, a BB King song or two. So I started diving into where he learned a lot of the blues stuff, uh, dating back to Elmore James, Albert King, uh, uh, just all these great blues players. So I dug back further into the forties and fifties and sixties blues music. And yeah, that's where that came from. And I, the more I listened to it, the more I appreciated it. And then came into Eric Clapton, you know, uh, Jeff Beck, uh, the stones. And then, then it just, it just kept going. And it, and it's, it's crazy. My record collection is crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like, you know, when you take that, leap into that other genre of blues that's a deep deep dive because like you said it can go back as early as i think even like the 1920s or the 1930s like hey it didn't go way back so another another band that i can hear in your music when you're playing more blues is zz top are you a zz top fan <laughs> yes yes uh always have been um and i was always amazed by how Billy Gibbons would, 
get such a in your face guitar sound, but yet play so little, you know, just, just hang on to one note. And I, that always amazed me by this time when I got into ZZ top, I had, I was dissecting music left and right in my head, but, uh, and it always, uh, I always found it fascinating how just three guys, you know, can make so much music. And I realized that's kind of what I want to do. I want to, I want to play the blues rock stuff. I want to play the Stevie Ray stuff. I want to play the country stuff. I want to that. And then that's kind of where we're at today because our band now plays all this stuff. And, uh, is that, uh, is that snake eyes? Yes. Yes. Uh, do you say it like snake eyes? (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, but the DJ on the Villages radio, when they announce us on the squares, he does that. And we chuckle every time we hear it. I mean, it does have two S's, so. Yes. <laughs> well, the reason that the reason the, the name came about was when we first, uh, when my wife and I were doing the duo thing, we decided to get into the band. So she learned to play the bass, which wasn't overnight. Uh, she didn't know how to play an instrument at all. But we had come across while she was learning, we had come across this husband and wife that uh, she played a little bass and he played drums. I thought, perfect. So about two or three months into this, they wanted to play. They didn't care what we sounded like. So that didn't work out because we knew we needed to rehearse more. It it just sounded horrible. (laughs) Yeah, they left. You got to put in the work. (laughs) Yeah, it, they left. Uh, somehow we found we stumbled across another husband and wife drummer bass player. Like, oh, well, this is a sign of the times or something. Uh, that went on for a little bit longer, but that didn't work. So we wound up by this time. I think we were two years in. Uh, my wife had managed to play. Uh, she get, got enough songs down to play a gig. So she was a bass player. Uh, I was a front man guitar player, and we found a drummer. And as a blues rock country rock and roll band, uh, my wife loved uh, Dusty Hill, the bass player for ZZ Top, because he was always so solid. His bass lines were really solid and right in the pocket. And that's kind of who she mimics when she plays is, well, we're also a three piece. So she's the rhythm section. So uh, as far as it's funny, you mentioned ZZ Top, because that's kind of how we base our sound off of try to keep it full. Interesting. um, (laughs) And yeah. And well, that the drummer we had then lasted three years. Uh, He he wound up getting a a DUI or two on a golf cart, uh, losing his license. (laughs) And uh, that's very that's very Florida, JR. Yeah, you could say that. Matter of fact, in this area, that's very true. It happens a lot. <laughs> but uh, so, make a long story short, we wound up getting another drummer who had uh, who had a driver's license and a car. <laughs> but uh, and this drummer has been with us going on seventeen years now, and it's just wow. always been the three of us. Uh, and we like the three of us mainly because we don't have to charge the venues as much. Uh, you know, if we had five or six pieces, we'd have to charge more. Uh, and the venues tend to like that. And we have the more people in the band, the more personalities you have to work with, if that makes sense. 
if somebody's having a bad day, then it'll rub off with somebody else. It, it's, it's like being, it's like it's like another marriage. It is. It is exactly like that. Yeah. So the three of us get along very well. Uh, obviously, two of us do. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and uh, he's been with us for seventeen years now, and we're still going. And that's great. No, no uh, thoughts or anything of quitting or changing it up. And then so. you know you think about some of the the various shows you played over the years, right? So thinking back to some of them, uh, any favorite places that you think back fondly, maybe even still play there, but there could be some places too, as we all know, the changing of the time, some places don't survive. Yeah. So are there any places that you think back on that you just uh, had fond memories of playing at? Um, well, all the gigs are, are fun and we like playing all of them because we find that most of the people that come and see us are fans. A lot of our fans have become friends, but they all are, are very supportive. And that's who we, I mean, we enjoy playing for our friends and fans anyway. But uh, I've done some shows for uh, openings of some national acts, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, and big theaters and stuff like that. Uh, I think the largest crowd I played for to date was right at 3,800, which doesn't sound like a lot until you see 3,800 people in one place. Now that's a big number. Uh, yeah. Who was that but, with? Uh, that would have been opening a show with Kitty Wells and Johnny Wright, which uh, if anybody's familiar, she's known as the queen of country music. Uh, super nice people. Uh, it was a great night. Um, and they just reminded you like you were at their house for Thanksgiving dinner. They're super, it was a great show, but, uh, do you remember how you got that slot to play and open up? Actually? Yes. The guy that we, my wife and I played with that was skimming money. He, he had the contact. So we put the group together and he was the reason we got that job. And, uh, I was playing, I was on guitar maybe 14, 13, 14, because I wasn't driving yet. So 13, 14, I was on guitar. Uh, my dad was playing rhythm guitar. Uh, they had a drummer. I don't remember his name. The fellow that we were in the band with played the keyboards, uh, more like piano. And we had a couple other guys that I don't remember who they were. And the singer at the time was a lady called Celeste Schaefer. And, uh, she was uh she did a great job she was a great singer super nice uh back then we had a lot of fun but that show really stands out in my mind when they opened that curtain i just froze for about the first five seconds i mean i'm used to playing in bars with 30 to 40 people in them and then there's 3800 people sitting there staring at you going yeah. with that look uh entertain me now <laughs> were you doing a lot of like a, a mix of covers and originals? Like what was, what was the set list like? Um, there was a lot of covers and uh, Celeste had two original tunes out that she recorded in Nashville. So we did those. Um, and I think we only had, I think it was a 45 minute slot to open uh, for the main act. And uh, so, yeah, we did mostly covers and there was a couple of original tunes in there. So yeah, it was a mixture. And because Snake Eyes is in basically, you know, in the Ocala area, generally speaking, right? So there are other cities that are not too far away. You have like, you know, Gainesville, uh, Orlando, that sort of thing. So 
do you ever play gigs in those other towns and cities and what have you, and maybe travel more throughout Florida? We have, we don't much anymore, but we have, when we uh, first started snake eyes, uh, we hit the scene pretty hard. Um, we had a, uh, we had a camper, uh, and our equipment was in a trailer. So yeah, it would be, uh, we played as far north, uh, maybe a little bit further north than Gainesville, all the way down to St. Pete and coast to coast. So, yeah, we played all over the place. Um, most of the venues were nice enough. Uh, we would play for Friday and Saturday nights, and they would allow us to sit in the parking lot or behind the venue and hook up to water and electric for, with our camper and stay there overnight you know if we drove the from here to st pete i mean that's a little maybe an hour and a half away so they said yeah sure bring the camper down we'll, we'll set you up it was uh, it was a lot of fun didn't make much more money doing that but it was a lot of fun and uh we still get people come up to us to this date that says uh well i remember seeing you in 2001 you were playing at uh, such and such a bar as, oh my God! Yes, I remember that. That was that was a wild time. From your recollection, uh, was there a certain standout gig that you had There's, that just had some of the best crowd vibe going on? Anything come to mind? One of the most challenging and interesting gigs that we always talk about was we were playing in Palatka for uh, I think it was Daytona Bike Week. But we got uh, we got asked to play at a bar in Palatka. I think it's called Cheyenne Saloon. We took the camper up because they wanted us to play Friday night and Saturday night. Well, we took the camper up and set up, and it was an outdoor stage. So we played Friday night. I think we wound up playing for five hours, a little bit longer than we were originally supposed to. Um, we tore everything down, went in the camper, went to sleep. We got a knock on the door at nine o'clock Saturday morning. I know you guys aren't supposed to start till five o'clock, but can you go ahead and set up and start playing now? Uh, and they said, we'll, we'll be happy to pay you whatever. Well, okay, sure. Uh, so we set up, I think we started at uh, 11 o'clock. By the time we got all the equipment set up and checked and everything, we started at 11 o'clock and I think we played till nine o'clock that night. And we realized, uh, I think it was the second set. The crowd was awesome. I mean, there had to be, if I had to make a guess, maybe four or 500 bikes there. It was great. But we decided to test ourselves uh, and see if we could do that night without repeating a song. So we played, I don't know, what is it, nine hours, 10 hours, something like that. And we didn't repeat a song. We might not have done the song right, but <laughs> we didn't repeat the song. It's a long and time. Yes, it was. Uh, the, the craziest moment of that night was somebody dared us to play Freebird. <laughs> sure, fine, why not? So we started into playing Freebird. Now, mind you, this is just three-piece, bass, drums, and guitar. And I was doing my best to cover three guitar parts. Uh, so we got halfway through the song. And as we got into the fast part of Freebird, these bikes just started rolling in. There must have been 200 bikes that just drove right in front of the stage for the whole time we were rocking out. 
it was the coolest thing. And we, we still talk about that to this day. And uh, they were the nicest people, the, the fun, the, the crowds. It was, it was just a great night all around a great weekend. Anybody capture that at all in video form? Uh, somebody did, but where it is, I have no idea. We've seen the video, uh, but I can't remember where it's at. We might have it on a computer off of a VHS tape or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. Wow. It, it was a. It was definitely a fun night. And I'm I'm thinking too. You know, uh, I mean, that's the perfect song to really bring people <laughs> together. Plus, also too, I know most people typically wouldn't because you know, Skinner was like, I mean legendary band right so uh oh, yeah. but from florida right so i mean from jacksonville so yeah. uh you can't go wrong with Freebird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we did uh another thing we do is um there's a, a place here in the villages called city fire that uh every year they have a woodstock day you know they all dress up in woodstock clothes it's a woodstock themed day and uh, they had just, the owners just got this place. Uh, this was quite a few years ago, but they had just got this place. And I forget where we were at the time, but I was doing a Jimi Hendrix tune. I was doing a Voodoo Child. And at the end of Voodoo Child, my arrangement, I do the kind of like the Woodstock version of it with the Star Spangled Banner and everything. I do the behind the head and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so they were there. And at the end of that, um, they had come up to me and says, look, we do this Woodstock day. We would love for you to come and play for it because they saw the Hendrix thing. So sure, we'd love to. And we've done every one of those every year. I think it's going on like nine years now that we've done that. But uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the Jimi Hendrix thing I do, uh, people ask for it all the time, but I keep, I tell them, look, if I do it all the time, it won't be a special thing because everybody will get tired of seeing it. So every once in a while, I'll do the Hendrix tribute thing and, uh, the, with the star spangled banner and the squealing and all that kind of stuff. But I do that and, uh, kind of my own arrangement of it. There's a yeah. couple, two or three videos on YouTube of me doing it years ago, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Are there any other songs or anything else in your repertoire that you feel like really gets people excited and maybe something similar that they request that you play? Um, well, one of them is Easy Top. We've uh, we've kind of over the years we've got into this thing where we morph two songs into one. Like we do uh, Tush and Lagrange. That's one song. Uh, we do some CCR stuff. That's two in the one song. Make a real long song, but the uh, the uh, ZZ Top, Lagrange, and Tush—they uh, the, that's always a crowd pleaser. They always ask for it by name. Now, uh, Purple Rain is another one that I do that has a real elaborate ending to it, um, and that's quite different than some of the other music we've been talking about so far. So, yeah. do you dabble into oh, yeah. more of that style of music? Well, yeah, I've always liked Prince, but I never thought about you know us playing you know covering his stuff. In a, in a way, it's sad, but I'd never thought about doing that song until I had heard that he passed. Then all of a sudden, I said, hey, let's see if we can do Purple Rain. But, you, you know, it's in a way, it's kind of sad when something like that happens. You know, you, you think it takes something like that for you to think of that. And 
but yeah, I've always been a fan of, you know, like Prince, uh, Michael Jackson's another one, but there's, there's some tunes that we do that people kind of look at us in the beginning and scratch their heads. Like, how's this going to turn out? Really? And, uh, like we do, uh, we, we do a version of some kind of wonderful by grand funk and we morph that into, uh, the way you make me feel by Michael Jackson. And when we start into that, people kind of, they get, they, they do kind of a whiplash turn. Like what, wait, what, what are you doing now? How that's not possible. <laughs> and it, it is a bit of a U-turn. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, I'll do stuff like, uh, we do another brick in the wall by pink floyd and uh to which i do uh i have a megaphone and the middle of that song where he's kind of yelling from the helicopter i'll go over with the megaphone and do that through the pa and the people just eat it up that's very theatric uh, you know that's that's awesome yeah. that's great yeah I mean, we were for three people we're constantly trying to figure out something different that's a little bit out of the norm that other bands don't necessarily do uh not saying we're better than any other band but just something that's a little different and uh so <laughs> honestly we were at uh we were at a thrift store and i saw this megaphone sitting in a bin and i thought you know what i think i have a use for this and uh sure enough i the first night i tried it the, the people just went crazy so uh but yeah we had that's how we got a lot of work from being versatile and being able to cover these tunes like that. And a lot of our, uh, the people that come and see us, they would ask us, we always ask for a request because we want to play what they hear. That's what keeps them coming back. So if we don't know it, we would jot it down and we would learn it for the next time we were at that venue. We see that person, Hey, we learned your song. So here we go. And we're up to, if I had to guess, we'd probably in our, a catalog of songs that snake eyes covers is probably 17 1800 tunes now it's just crazy i mean we may not remember perfectly but we can cover them it's a lot of songs to have in the catalog but you know i i think you know the covers are are what people may be most familiar with however i'm a big fan of the original songs that i've heard there could right. be more out there I imagine there was a CD released at some point. Is that true? Yeah, we have. Uh, we actually have two CDs. Uh, the first one was released with our first drummer. I believe it's called Snaked. And uh, it has a picture of my wife on the front. Those are original songs. And uh, later on, after we got our new drummer, that uh, we released another album. And that's called... Uh, no, uh, shed and skin. My wife is feeding me my, my, my memory titles here, but it, that one's called shed and skin. And we released that one. That one. I remember that was in 2012. If I remember right. Where were these albums recorded? The first one was in the studio that we have. Uh, I have a, I have my studio now, uh, is the second one, but the first one I had here was a smaller one. And we recorded that there on an eight track uh, analog machine. And the second one, believe it or not, I, at that time I was in between studios. So we had a portable multi-track machine. <laughs> we had set up in my mother-in-law's barn and recorded that live in her barn. <laughs> so we call it the barn session. <laughs> yeah, that's fitting. 
but it worked. So, uh, and uh, we uh, we did a CD, our first CD release party that we actually did. We did it at a place called McCall's Tavern here in the villages. And the place was packed. I think it was a good thing that the fire chief didn't walk in because he would have flipped. There were too many people in that place. And how many people, so would, how many, how many people would you say were there? I guess in that little bitty club, there had to be 150, 175. Wow. And I, maybe 200, but we, we took our first break and we could not get off the stage to go to the bathroom there. It was just that packed. And uh, it was uh, the wait staff and everybody just looked at us, the deer in the headlights. You got to be crazy. They couldn't get through to give people their drinks and, and food. I would say out of that night, we probably sold 100, 125 copies that one night. Wow. So it, it was, uh, I mean, it's not like superstar status where, hey, we sold, uh, we went a million, you know. <laughs> but for, for local band like we are, it, it was a pretty, pretty great night. So is Snake Eyes at all working on any new material that you perhaps could be putting out? Um, right at this moment, we have, we have, uh, a handful of songs that we haven't done a whole lot with, but I find that now, uh, because of COVID, I started doing some solo gigs too. And, uh, I'm still along with the band, you know, when everything got back to normal after COVID, the band started picking up, but in order to keep working, I was, uh, I'd done some solo shows and at this point, I'm doing the uh, the band gig and the solo at the same time. So I've had a few people ask for a solo release. So um, as soon as I finish up with a couple of projects I have in the studio for other people, uh, I am going to put together a solo album of original stuff. And I've got a few ready to go on there, and it should be a pretty quick because it's just me and acoustic guitar. So. I do have a couple on, uh, what do you call them, the, the digital platforms. Um, I have a couple of songs that are there. Uh, I, I know it's on iTunes. I just heard it today on, on Spotify or uh, uh, Amazon Music. Uh, I didn't realize it was on there. Uh, her daughter got us an Alexa for Christmas, so we just hooked that up. and It was shuffling music this morning and up pops my song like wow that's that's cool yeah <laughs> there are two songs that i have heard fairly recently uh, i think they're on youtube this thing and hello sister are those fairly that's, new are those yeah, new those songs the, right well yeah uh within the last couple of years well geez no i i take it back now time has gotten away from me this is 2024 uh hello sister i wrote back in 2018 and I think if I remember right, this thing I wrote during COVID, because it's even though it sounds kind of like an upbeat song, it's it's a Johnny Cash flair to it. But it's actually a song that talks about depression. And uh, there's a lot of people I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it. But during COVID, there was a lot of people that were going through that. So this idea popped into my head during the COVID session i guess you call it and i wrote that song but yeah they're uh they're relatively new but not brand new as you're writing music how much of what's going on around you whether it be 
personal stuff, current events, that sort of thing. How much of that goes into your own songwriting? Uh, well, a lot. This uh, this thing actually came about. I had just heard uh, another one of my musical heroes, uh, Marty Stewart. I had just heard a song that he uh, had out, and I well, I just heard it for the first time. It wasn't a new song, but I heard in an interview where he had written this song with Johnny Cash, and I he they played the song on the radio interview. And uh, because of that song, I was influenced. Uh, that influenced my writing of this thing because it, it kind of has that same flair, but it's talking about a different uh, subject. But yeah, that influenced uh, the songwriting and that song a lot. As far as Hello Sister, that is actually a true story about my sister and myself. And uh we had just got reacquainted back in 2018 and I never considered myself much of a songwriter. Uh, so coming home from work one day, uh, coming up the driveway, I had this idea popped into my head. So I came in, uh, got settled down. I told my wife, so I'm, I got to go out in the studio real quick. I got this song idea. I got to write it down and get as much of it down as I can. So I went out in the studio and 15 minutes later, this song was done. Uh, I had just wrote it and kind of recorded it on my iPhone real quick, just so I'd remember it. I came back in and played it for my wife. I said, what do you think? She said, sounds great. It talks about exactly how you two, you know, grew up. And uh, so then later on, I, as time went by, I went back in the studio and recorded it the right way. And that's the version that's out there now. It's a beautiful song. Thank you. Um, it's a true story. <laughs> and the the odd thing is, um, I play the song out from time to time, and just about every single time, somebody will come up to me and say, "That's an amazing song," and I know exactly how you feel because my brother and I, or my sister and I, we haven't talked in thirty years. And for the first time last week, we just had a two hour conversation on the phone and they always share their story about that. But it's something that's hardly ever talked about. And what made me write the song? I really don't know. It's probably because of what I was what we were bringing back to the surface, you know, her and I getting reacquainted. But if I have to say I was proud of proud of that song, I, I am. I'm, I'm a big fan of songs that that. Uh, people get connected to you know they have their own story of and that i mean that to me is what music's for anyway you know make you feel happy sad you know great you know you just get married you got a song for it you, somebody right. passes away you got a song for it uh, and speaking of family another song that i saw on youtube was written by your dad dear mr president do you do a lot of songs from that maybe were written from your dad that you kind of squeeze in here and there that uh i i do have a handful of his that i do um uh, that one i actually started doing uh a few years ago and uh but i listened to him when he originally recorded it back in the 70s and there was only two verses to it and i'm listening to it like, eh, there's more to this story uh so i had written the third verse to that and uh, he had passed away almost two years ago now, but he was 
he heard the song and he loved it. Uh, and I do play it out at my solo gigs once in a while. And people, I've noticed they get a mixed reaction on it. Because one, they're sitting there, either they sit there and think of what I just sang and they're, the ideas are tossing in their head about how they feel about it. Or I'll always get the one guy hollering out, that's a great song. That, that's exactly how we feel. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, I, I've got a handful of his tunes that I'll dig out. And actually, I've got, uh, after he passed, I was going through some of his stuff in his studio. I found a brown spiral notebook of a bunch of songs that he never recorded. So um, I'm also going through there and seeing if I could put a tune to some of these tunes to uh, possibly make that, you know, make something like that on my solo album. What's the feeling that goes through you when you stumble upon something like that, that maybe you didn't know existed and you see that and you uncover some of those songs that your dad had written? Um, well, it's, it's, I guess in a way it's kind of mixed, but not really. But uh, the best way I guess I can explain it was is that, um, again, I've always, he's always been in the music. I've always known him in the music and it's just, it's just something else. It's like finding a lost record or something. And uh, I'll listen to it. And I guess I, being as I'm older, I, I read these songs and, and listen to them in a different way than I would have 20 years ago. I'm just mainly because, like I say, I don't personally have a bunch of songs that I've written. And some of his, he was a great songwriter, a great entertainer. But uh, yeah, I'll listen to him and then I'll, I'll think about the story and the storyline and, and if they're a different, you know, if it's a different type of song, then, then I'll, I'll elaborate on it and record it or something like that. But some of them are a little bit different. There were a couple of them that I, I read that I thought, nah, I, I'm not going to be able to get through this one. Let's go to the next one. Is that because it is how it made you feel like more of like a sad situation? Yeah. Yeah. There was one and, uh, he had written one before I was born, actually. It's called Tribute to a Little Giant. That's one song that I could never do because he wrote it uh, talking about me before I was born. And he had mentioned to me one time, he said, well, change the words and make it about your son. He said, no, nah, I can't do that. And then that's, it, it's not right. You can't do that. So just, I said, there's just some songs you got to leave alone. Just leave them the way they are. Did he ever record that song at all? Yeah, that one's actually recorded. Um, it was on, uh, he recorded it with his band. Uh, it's on, it was pressed on records, uh, 45s. Um, and I've got copies of it. And yeah, it's it's been recorded, published. It was out there in the public back in the 70s. My uncle on my mom's side was a uh, radio disc jockey up in Cambridge, Ohio. And he would, from time to time, he would play some of my dad's records up there on the radio. So uh, he still got it. He has a, my dad had a, a BMI publishing license and he could always tell how many uh, of his songs my uncle would play on the radio by the $3.47 check he would get every six months for BMI. <laughs> That's how you know it's still a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> I also wanted to ask you too, real quick, uh, Jr. When you are playing some of these gigs, right? Obviously, there's a lot of hustle involved. You having to uh, promote yourself and the things that you have going on. But over the years, have there been any local publications of any kind that have helped maybe to spread the word of what? you've been doing and maybe the bands you've been playing in uh, anything like that you can recall well um outside of the venues uh making up posters and flyers stuff like that because when, when we hit the scene real hard there was no social media so it was all pretty much legwork so to speak um the only thing i could think of that i remember that made a drastic change was uh we have a friend or two that are uh, their radio disc jockeys. So every once in a while, we would hear them announce the local uh, local bands that are playing, you know, were in the local venues. They would advertise on the radio. And the, uh, the newspaper used to have a whole page. Um, and that page used to be called uh, Go Clubbing. And they would list all the nightclubs and all the bar rooms. And they would list where all the bands were playing. And we would see our name in there about every weekend and uh that's about about it for back in those days but nowadays it's all facebook and uh social media you know that, that they put it on facebook was that like a local ocala paper uh it was ocala star banner yeah okay star yeah. banner yep yeah we still have some of those clippings you know we years ago when you had stuff like that you make a photo album and uh for the kids nowadays those are where you kept pictures it's not like you kept your your photos in the cloud or anything <laughs> right right a physical uh scrapbook yes that's right that's right <laughs> my wife was just telling me that uh the second snake eyes album shed and skin um our son at the time was three years old and if anybody has a copy of this cd as soon as you put the cd in our son does a count one two three four then the music starts and then you listen to the album all the way through. At the very end of the album, the song dies out. And about three seconds later, he's, you hear him on there saying, that's a wrap. Thank you. And the CD's over with. But, How uh, old was he? Three years old. Wow. Three, three then. Sounds like he may have beaten you because you didn't. You, you, <laughs> you had a little bit of a later start. So uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. He's not playing yet. He'll be 15 next month. He's not playing yet, but we're working on it. I keep telling him, look, hey, you can go out and for a few hours a night, make a couple hundred bucks. You know, it's not that hard. Just, but it hasn't sunk in yet. But maybe when he's 15 or 16, you know, when he gets a little older and realizes how much gas money costs for his car, <laughs> maybe that'll help. <laughs> if he decided that he wanted to play music, is there a fourth slot available in Snake Eyes? We'll figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good we'll answer. make him a sound man or something. But uh, yeah, my <laughs> wife uh, says she may be retired by then. But but yeah, we'll we'll figure something out, or we can. I'll just run sound for his band. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And also, just real quick about Snake Eyes, because there really isn't a lot of music you can find digitally. Is there any? possibility of getting some of that stuff out there, whether it be on Spotify or on, or on iTunes or even on like a band camp or something like that. I do need to get some of that out there. And I've, I have a bunch of friends uh, who are on me about it. You know, Hey, you need to put something out there. You need to put something out there. And a lot of our family members are the same way. 
Um, I need to do that. And, but what I need, the, the, the thing is, is I need to, uh, upload the CD into the computer in the studio to be able to release them as a single. Then you can, you know, I can, I could do that. I, I need to remaster them. So they sound a little bit better for today's, um, uh, musical society, but yeah, that, uh, that has been talked about. I just need to get, uh, in there and get off my lazy rear end and do it. <laughs> but certainly it would be nice for, as, as you've heard from others, uh, to be able to listen to those songs or just be able to, you know, for those that may not have experienced that those songs and see the band and go on and start looking them up, looking up snake eyes. Oh, cool. I found some songs. Right, right. And they're, and they're not covers. They're originals. And and right. I imagine pretty good originals. These from the ones I've heard, uh, I liked every one of them. So, Well, we appreciate stuff. that. Thank you. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to be working on that soon. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I both wrote those songs on that second album. So, yeah, we'll, uh, I'll, get, uh, I'll get on that pretty shortly here. <laughs> there you go. Awesome stuff, Jr. It's been a pleasure having you on, and thanks to your uh, your wife Donna for helping fill in some of the gaps. I know, <laughs> I know, you know, it's hard to remember every little detail, so it's nice to be able to uh, to get that as well. And it's just been a pleasure having you on to tell your story. Uh, as we kind of get ready to close things out, I'm going to turn it over to you. Any final thoughts to close out the interview? Uh, the floor is yours. Um, I would say to anybody out there that wants to play for a living, uh, just at the risk of sounding like an old shoe company, just do it. Uh, don't worry about what anybody thinks. There will be people that'll say no. Uh, don't worry about it because the more people that say no, there's going to be somebody that says yes. And before you go from a musician's point of view, don't go out and get a band uh, and expect 500 people to show up at your gig. Uh, you have to play the five person barroom gigs before you get the 500 seat venues and just be true to yourself. Um, that's what you can do in the end. And, uh, uh also, uh, I say this at the end of every gig, uh, be safe and be true, uh, be kind of fellow man and just help each other out and take care of each other. Um, in the end, that's what we got anyway. So, yeah, just if you got the dream, no matter what it is, just do it. Don't worry about it. Just do it and hang in there because it's going to be a rough ride. If it was easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> but that's it. I appreciate you having me here. You were nearly six years old when I was born. We had separate mothers. We lived in separate homes. Too young to realize that we were related as time went on we slowly faded a few years later in another town you came to visit teenager now as time went on I got to know you and then the bomb it began growing hello sister how have you been I want to hear 
about the stories and the places you have been. I want to know your favorite song and how you feel when nights get long. Hello, sister. Hello, sister. Stayed with us a little while I enjoyed her time We hung out on the back porch To pass the time Then came the day You had to go back home It was kinda sad Cause I was all alone Fast forward 30 years, I'm a grown man A loving wife and family, and a piece of land You were always on my mind, as I look for you My prayers were answered, the day that I found you And hello sister, how have you been? I want to hear about the stories and the places you have been I want to tell you about my life, introduce you to my wife Hello sister, hello sister come true and hello sister how have you been I want to hear about the stories and the places you have been I want to tell you about my life and introduce you to my wife hello sister hello sister